I heard something kind of interesting, and uh, it, it actually fits with the song we just sang, believe it or not, Josh, but there was a businessman. He was known for his ruthlessness. He was known for his boastfulness. He was known for his religiosity, and uh, he once told Mark Twain, so obviously this is something that took place quite a while ago. He told Mark Twain that, you know, before I die, he said, I want to visit the Holy Land. I want to, I want to climb Mount Sinai, and when I climb Mount Sinai, I want to read the Ten Commandments out loud. And Mark Twain looked at him, and again, keep in mind, this guy was just like this boastful guy that really got on everybody's nerves. And as he said this, I guess it bothered Twain as well. And Twain said, you know what? I have a better idea. How about you just stay here in Boston and you keep the Ten Commandments instead of going to Mount Sinai and feeling like you need to read them? And I, I thought that was interesting because even as we were singing that song, one of the phrases in that song talks about the fact that I, I will not boast in anything except what? Ultimately, who Christ is and what he's done for me, it reminds me of Galatians 6, 14, where the Apostle Paul says, as for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified, and the world's interest in me has also died. And I think that's a beautiful thing for us to be thinking about this evening as we focus on Christ and what Christ accomplished on the cross. And our primary scripture this evening, if you want to turn there with me, is going to be from John chapter 19. And in John chapter 19, I'm going to read for us, starting with verse 16, and then I'm going to read all the way down to verse 30, and then we'll come back and revisit these verses a, a portion at a time. But in John chapter 19, starting with verse 16, it, it speaks about the events that took place surrounding the crucifixion of Jesus and the things that were done to him and the things that he said, even in that context. And it says this in John chapter 19, starting with verse 16. It says, So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. 
A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to carve out some time together this evening to commemorate what you accomplished long time ago now, but something that has marked time and has been a moment in time that we as believers, we never really leave, we never really escape this thought, we never forget what you accomplished on our behalf. And so we're grateful to be able to spend some time focusing on this this evening. We're grateful to be able to think about all that was accomplished on our behalf in your crucifixion. And we're grateful to be able to see these things as they're outlined in your word. We pray that you'd speak to our minds and speak to our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we understand how to apply these things to our day-to-day lives. And we pray this all in your name. Amen. So there's a variety of things that are illustrated for us in the portion of Scripture that we just read together. And when you look at the, the first verses, when we look at verses 16 down to verse 22... That portion of Scripture illustrates for us the fact that Jesus bore a burden that was too heavy for us to carry. And when you look at some of the things here, it it tells us that in, in the opening verses that we just looked at, verse 16 and 17, it says, So they took Jesus, and He went out bearing His own cross to the place called the place of a skull. Now, when you think of Jesus bearing His own cross, and you think of the things that He was enduring in that moment, it's obviously something that we look at and we think, all right, how, how was he able to even move with all the torture that his body had endured even prior to this? And when you look at the, at the other scriptures, they speak of the fact that, that eventually you have Simon that was called in to assist here. And uh, I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a, in a spot where for a long or protracted period of time, you ended up carrying something very heavy. I remember a few years back, I got this idea in my mind that I was going to replace the mulch around our house with river rock. So I had a large truck of river rock come, and, and uh, it was, it, the, the truck just deposited it in front of our house. And if you've ever had to shovel river, river rock and carry it in a wheelbarrow, you realize that it gets old very quickly. And I remember uh, looking at it and thinking, all right, this is going to be a lot of work. And the truth is, I ran out of daylight the first day doing it, so it actually took me a portion of the next day to do it. And I remember when the task was done, I felt like I didn't want to move my back, and I felt like I didn't want to move my arms. And I still remember my mother was living at the time, and and, uh, she was living with us at at that point. And I remember as I was pushing what must have been like the hundredth wheelbarrow load, looking at her face as she kind of caught my eye, and I could see motherly concern in her face thinking, you're pushing yourself too far. You need to take a break. That you're, you're going to be exhausted. How, you know, how are you continuing to do that? And you've probably experienced moments like that where you found yourself carrying something repeatedly that after a while your body feels physically exhausted. And I mention this because when you look at the opening verses that we just read there, I think we, to a certain degree, can identify with the, the feeling of pain that comes with trying to carry something that's very heavy. We've all had to do it at one point or another. And as heavy as physical objects tend to be, I would also say that the emotion, emotional and spiritual burdens that we try to carry are even heavier and more exhausting. 
And many people go throughout the course of their lives trying to carry these things, even though they're not really designed to be able to carry these things in and of themselves. And as we look at this scripture from John chapter 19, we're told here that Jesus went out bearing his own cross. He was about to be crucified. The Roman government, what they would do is they would require you to carry your own cross to, you know, that heavy beam of wood, you were required to carry that to the place of your execution where you would then be nailed to that cross, and, um, and they would do this to make a spectacle of you. They would do this to add a little bit more insult and a little bit more pain to your torture. And so Jesus was, was required to carry this cross and to, to bring it to the place of his execution. And you look at this and you say, all right, what was he doing in this moment? You know, as the scripture tells us that he went out bearing his own cross. What was he doing in this moment? What was Jesus trying to accomplish here? Well, Jesus had done no wrong. That's something that we know about him. He had sinned not. He had done nothing uh, to deserve uh, any sort of retribution. He had done nothing that had deserved punishment. He had done no wrong. No sin was found in him. And you even have Pilate who confirms it. I I do, and I'm sure you get a kick out of it as well, um, as Pilate puts this title, King of the Jews, over the cross, and people protest this, and they say, don't say king of the Jews. Say that he claimed to be the king of the Jews, and you have Pilate saying, look, what I've written, I've written. So basically, you know, what's he saying? He's like, listen, get lost. This, is, this, this man has done no wrong. He's, he's caught up in the, the furor of your uh, irrational animosity toward him, and he's bearing a penalty that, doesn't, that he does not deserve to be bearing. And so you have Pilate even confirming that Jesus was sinless, and yet he was being sent to the cross like the worst of criminals, and on top of that, being forced to carry that beam. And I look at this, and one of the things that I'm reminded of, and something certainly that I want us to be mindful of this evening as we think about these things, is the reason Jesus was doing this was not for his sake, but for your sake and for my sake. He was doing this for us. Jesus was doing this to illustrate the fact that he was bearing in his body the burden for our sin. He was bearing the burden for our sin. That beam should have been on our backs, but it represents the burden of our sin. The Scripture tells us here that Jesus was carrying it. We should have felt the pain of carrying it, and yet Jesus carried it for us. And It's kind of interesting when you look at the deeper significance of what he was illustrating in this physical act, because I don't know if you currently feel burdened by something that you're struggling to let go of. One of the things that I have noticed throughout the course of the the years that I've served as a pastor, that much of the counseling that takes place in that office, it comes down to burdens that people try to carry that they should ultimately be giving over to Christ, but yet they choose to try and carry these things sometimes for decades in their own strength and in their own power. And I don't know if right now you're, you're wrestling with something that you feel like there's a burden that you're struggling to let go of, something maybe that, that is uh, on your mind or on your heart that really should be entrusted over to the Lord, and yet it's something that you try to carry. And here's the thing, we don't have to keep trying to carry the very things that Jesus has already lifted up for us. And when Christ came to this earth, he didn't come to this earth to leave you and me to carry a burden in our own strength that was really meant to be submitted over to him. I like what we're told in Luke chapter 11, verse 46. 
Jesus here illustrates this with a, a critique, and he says, and, and he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. And so he was speaking to those that were just caught up in religious legalism, and he, he said, look it, you know, you burden people with, with all kinds of loads. You burden people with burdens that are hard to bear, and you don't even lift a finger to help them with the, the spiritual and emotional burdens that you're burdening them with. And one of the mistakes that some people can oftentimes make, and one of the things that sometimes I think we miss, is the fact that Jesus came to this earth to bear a burden for us that we couldn't bear in our own strength. And he was illustrating this for us in what he was accomplishing on the cross. And so if you and I are still allowing our minds and our hearts to be weighed down with things that Christ has invited us to entrust over to him, I'd encourage you to keep this in mind. He didn't do this for nothing. He didn't bear that cross. He didn't carry that cross to the place uh, of the skull, which Scripture here says was called Golgotha. He didn't do that so that you and I can continue carrying the spiritual and emotional burdens that we've been trying to carry. He did this so that we understand that we can entrust these things over to Him and allow Him to carry the things that we don't have the strength to carry. And the Scripture goes on to tell us a little bit more about what Christ was doing, because ultimately I believe that what Jesus is illustrating in the next portion of Scripture here is this idea that He also, in addition to carrying a burden for us, He also came to take our shame upon himself. And the scripture tells us this. It gives us very specific details. When you look at verse 23 of John 19, it says, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And it says, this was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. Now, a while ago, um, this was actually a little, little bit of time ago now, I heard something rather unfortunate about someone that I grew up with. And I won't go into the details of everything that entails, but Basically, he committed a crime that is now resulting in him serving, I believe it's going to be decades in prison. And, um, and I remember at the time when I heard about it, I thought, all right, that's a shame on many, on, on many levels. I felt, I felt bad about the entire situation. And uh, I don't know if he fully admitted everything that he's accused of doing, but I, I know that the authorities felt that they had enough... Uh, enough evidence to accuse him of this, and, and now he's, he's gone away for a while. And so I was observing this from a distance. I saw his name in the news. I saw his name shared all over the place. I thought, wow, this is normally someone or something that you see about people that you don't even know. And then I thought it was interesting. Right before he was taken away to prison, he posted something online, which was just a long apology toward everyone he had ever let down. And it was a, uh, essentially a confession and an apology where he said, I'm ashamed of myself, and I'm sorry that I have caused so much shame to be experienced in the lives of others. And it was something that was then just left online as he then went to prison and then lost all access to you know, the, the ability to update that. And you, know, you, you look at that and you think, all right, that was kind of an interesting emotional state for this man to be in because 
as he's looking at his life and he's thinking about the shame that he's now experiencing and the shame that he's causing others, he's filled with a lot of regret. And I think that if, if you and I, if we had our lives just opened up as like a completely open book, there are probably moments that we would have to admit in our own lives that are less than admirable. And things that we would say, you know what, if I could go back in time, I would redo that moment. I would live that moment differently because when I think of that moment, it produces shame in my heart. And some of these things might be in the distant past. Maybe some of them are in the the recent past. But what do we do with those feelings of shame? And we've all experienced those things. What do we do with those feelings of shame? When those things come to your mind, when those things come to your heart, what do you do with that? Do you dwell on it? Do you think about it? Do you beat yourself up about it? Or is there something you could actually do with it? Do you try and hold on to these things? Do you try and feed these things? Do you castigate yourself over and over and over again because of them? Here's another question worth asking. If you've already repented of the activity that was producing the shame, should you still even feel the shame? What should your perspective be in a context like that? Well, notice what we're told in a portion of Scripture like this. We're told in this passage that the soldiers took the garments that Jesus was wearing, and they divided his garments among them. Now, according to Roman custom, the soldiers who carried out a crucifixion, one of the rewards or prizes they were given, and and by the way, during that time, clothing was considered like money. One of the ways you could pay for things was with clothing. It was considered, you know, essentially a form of currency. And so according to Roman custom, The soldiers who were carrying out a crucifixion, they had the right to the victim's clothing. That was one of the ways in which they were compensated for their activity. And Jewish law required that the person being crucified should be stripped naked. Now, I recognize that a lot of times when you see portrayals of Christ and his crucifixion, for modesty's sake, we typically see that there's maybe some sort of like a loincloth or something like that. But the truth is, when Jesus hung there, he hung there just openly naked before the world while his crucifiers were looking at him, distributing his clothing, and just mocking him. And that's what he endured in that moment. And what was Jesus doing in that moment? Because there's there's no aspect of the crucifixion that wasn't intentional. It all meant something. It all was meant to illustrate something. It all had purpose to it. What was Christ trying to illustrate in that moment as he hung naked before people and then was mocked in the midst of the torture he was going through. Well, he was being stared at, he was being scoffed, and he was taking our shame upon himself at the cross. Again, he who had done no wrong, he who had no shame of his own, was taking our shame upon himself. And in fact, that was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Isn't it interesting to just think about all of this, that Jesus endured all of this willingly? That he was willing to go through that for you and for me, and so often we forget this truth. And we try to clothe ourselves with our own shame, forgetting the fact that Jesus came to this earth to take the shame of our sin upon himself, the weight of our shame. He wanted to bear the burden of that for you and for me. And if we truly trust in Jesus, if we truly trust the the work that he accomplished on our behalf on the cross, 
It's not his desire that we continue to hold on to the shame that he has already dealt with. He's inviting us to acknowledge that he's taken care of it for us so that we can start seeing ourselves different, so that you don't see yourself as someone who is just, uh, you know, distant from God and someone that's just consumed with shame, but that you begin to see yourself as one who is loved. Do you see yourself that way? Do you think of yourself as, as one that God looks at and says, I love that person, I love that man, or I love that woman? Do you see yourself as clean, Do you still see yourself as someone who's muddied up by the filth of your own sin? Do you see yourself as forgiven? Scripture makes it very clear that in Christ we are loved, in Christ we are clean, in Christ we are forgiven. And yet for natural reasons, and I could see why people do this, so often we think that we need to bear our shame as an ongoing thing for the rest of our lives, And yet when we do that, we forget what Christ endured on our behalf. This was not a pleasant thing for Christ to experience or endure, and yet He did that for you and for me. He bore a burden that we couldn't carry. He endured shame that really we deserved, and yet He took our shame upon Himself at the cross. And then the Scripture illustrates something else about Jesus that amazes me because it shows you where his mind was going in the midst of enduring our burden and our shame. When you look at verse 24, the second part of it, down to verse 27, it says that, you know, it says, so the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister. And then it says, Mary, the wife of, uh, wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Let me pause there. Imagine being Mary observing these things taking place. And by the way, what's happened up to this point, where are the disciples that eventually become apostles? They've scattered. So they're not there, except for one. There's one of them that's there. He's not named. He's just referenced here as the disciple Jesus loved. But it's actually John, the one who wrote down this gospel, the gospel of John. And he just refers to himself simply as the disciple Jesus loves. I I actually think that was a form of modesty as he was recording this down. I think he was... um, attempting to not, you know, immortalize his own name and brag about himself. He just refers to himself as a guy that was loved by Jesus. And isn't that a a kind of a cool way that you and I can think of ourselves as well? A woman who was loved by Jesus, a guy who was loved by Jesus. You know, if you think about who you are in Christ, you're someone he loves. But in the midst of all of this, you have Mary and her family observing what's happening to Jesus They're seeing all this. So it says, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And then in verse 26, it says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, crucifixion was intentionally designed to be agonizing and painful. It was meant to be absolutely brutal. It was meant to make the person being crucified uh, a spectacle and make them experience pain unlike they had ever experienced pain before. And we know that prior to being nailed to the cross, Jesus was beaten severely to the point where if most people were beaten in that capacity, they would have died just from the blood loss that came with that beating. We also know that he was 
in a mocking way, crowned with thorns. So you have all these forms of physical torture taking place prior to Christ actually experiencing this crucifixion. Now he's being hung to a cross by nails. He's still bleeding profusely. And in addition to that, without getting exceedingly graphic, one of the ways that uh, crucifixion impacts the body is that it starts to restrict the way you're able to breathe freely. And as your body succumbs to the effect of crucifixion, your lungs actually start to fill with fluid and you suffocate. So in the midst of the physical exterior torture that you could say that his body was going through, at the same time that he's hanging on the cross, his lungs are now filling with fluid and he's not able to get a full breath and he's getting to a spot where he's being suffocated. And you ever look at something like that and think about things like, what would my mind be thinking about if I was in that spot? I think about stuff like that, and I don't think about it in a morbid way. Uh, I think about it just in a practical way, and sometimes I connect it to some of the things that I've personally experienced or witnessed with my own eyes. I would imagine that, that most people would be primarily concerned in a moment like that with reducing the pain they were experiencing. Wouldn't you think that would be a pretty natural way uh, to kind of assess what's going on or to treat what's going on? I, I can tell you um, in the 25 years that I've, I've been serving as a pastor, I have been with, I don't know how many people actually have been with uh, in their last moments on this earth or in the days leading up to that, but in some contexts, especially some that are you know, lingering with, with uh, severe issues that they're in the hospital being treated for, you know, it's a pretty common thing to see when someone's in their last moments like that, when they're lingering in great pain in a hospital. Continued requests for medicine to dull the pain. And if you've ever been in a hospital context like that, you could see that there's also like a button sometimes that a, the person could press where they will then be given through their IV additional medication to try and dull the pain. And it's on kind of a meter to make sure that somebody doesn't over-medicate as they're doing that. But that's typically what I see when people are in their last earthly moments. They usually just want to dull the pain. And here's the thing, I don't blame them, right? That's a pretty logical thing. Why would they not want to do that? If there's medicine that they're hooked up to, they could push a button and dull the pain and it's severe pain. I don't blame anybody for, for, for wanting to do that. It's actually a very logical thing. But it makes, me, it makes what Christ did on the cross stand out to me even more. Because in a moment like that, you think, all right, what would I be thinking about? And it's pretty natural to just think about escaping pain. And yet, on Jesus' mind in this moment, we're, we're told that in the midst of this excruciating suffering... He's thinking about others. Now, Scripture reveals to us that he's thinking about the joy that all believers are going to be able to experience because of what he's endured on the cross for them. And then specifically, it gives us an example of how he's also thinking about his earthly mother. He's thinking about her needs. He's thinking about her ongoing well-being. He takes time to focus on, on the needs of Mary. Now, trying to fend for yourself in this world is difficult for anybody. And truthfully, we were not designed by the Lord to try and do everything alone. That's just not how we're designed. We're designed to actually live in community, in relationship. And in Mary's case, it's, it's widely believed that up to this point now that her husband Joseph was already dead. And we also know 
that her other children had no faith in Christ. They, they were unbelievers at this point. They become believers after his resurrection, but at this point, they're not believers. So you have Mary. She is a widow, and she has uh, a, you know, a group of children that as of yet do not believe in Christ. I also don't know exactly how old they were at this particular spot in time. And um, Mary, being a widow, traditionally speaking, Jesus, her eldest child, would have been responsible to care for her. And there he is on the cross, and he's dying, and he sees that these are his last moments. And so with this in mind, you have Jesus, who looks over at the Apostle John. And by the way, the Apostle John was known for being a very loving person. If you ever read, you know, the, he wrote five books of the Bible, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the book of Revelation, and the Gospel of John. And you could actually see as a theme in John's life that he would focus specifically on what it looked like for us to receive the love of God and then demonstrate the love of God to one another. Now, I've heard a story, this is not in the Bible, but I've heard a story uh, that, that John, who was the one who, he was the youngest disciple who then lived the longest of all of them. He lived in, in, into, you know, good old age. The others were all executed. He, they had, people attempted to execute John, they just didn't succeed. But then that when he was a very, very, very old man, uh, I heard that the church decided that they wanted to bring him before the congregation as they were assembled on the Lord's Day and just ask him one particular Sunday to just give a word of encouragement to the believers. And he was at a spot where his voice was really, really weak. He was at a spot where he couldn't, you know, deliver like a full-fledged sermon or anything like that. But it's recorded that he just simply said, love one another in a, in a faint voice. So even, you know, when you think about the theme of someone's life, that was the idea, the mindset that he had, and he was grateful that he was a recipient of the love of God, and he wanted to demonstrate that to others. And so here you have Jesus look at the Apostle John, and he tells him, hey, John, from now on, I want you to treat Mary like she's your mom. So I'm saying to you, I give my responsibility to care for her over to you. She's your mom now. You get it? And I believe that John probably gave him the affirmative like, yep, I get it. And then he looks at Mary and he says, Mary, I want you to look at him like he's your son. Think of him as your son. Let him offer you the help that, that you would have received from me. That's going to come from him now. So he's your son now, right? Right. He's my son now. And that's what's taking place in that moment. And from that point on, Mary was cared for by John. I love Christ. I love the example that he gives us. I love the fact that it flies in the face of the self-centered tendencies that humanity tends to display. And it's such a beautiful thing to look at this and realize that Jesus' mind was on the needs of others, not his own. Not his own comfort. His mind was on the needs of others. In fact, the Apostle Paul also makes reference to this aspect of Christ's heart. When you look at Acts chapter 20, verse 35, it says this, it says, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than it is to receive. What did Christ come to do? He didn't come to get anything from me or you. Jesus came to help the weak. 
Jesus came to help the lost. He came to take the weak and the lost and make us strong and found in him. And then he invites us to demonstrate that same kind of mindset to one another in our families, in the local church, in our communities, wherever he gives us the opportunity to do so. It's a beautiful thing. One other thing that John chapter 19 illustrates for us, and it's key that on a day like today, we would keep this on the forefront of our mind, but basically it reveals to us that Jesus finished the work that only he could accomplish. It says in verses 28 through 30, it says, after this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It's a beautiful portion of Scripture. Do you know where Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania is? Do you have an idea where that is? It's on the other side of the state from where we're gathered, about five hours away. In that town, there is a church, and some of you may not even know um, that this is the case, but there's actually a church there that I'm directly responsible for. Slightly tricky when you live five hours away, right? Uh, but it's a church that needs to be replanted. I've been able to find some of, some of the initial leadership uh, that I've got in place there, but the truth is the building is in need of repair. And certain areas of the building need a lot of repair. And for a little while here, I've been wondering, how am I going to accomplish this? Because I don't exactly live right around the corner. It's not like I could just go quickly drive over to Beaver Falls. So I've been trying to think, like, how am I going to get some of that stuff accomplished? And it's been weighing on my mind. I've been thinking about it. Heating system needs to be replaced. Uh, part of the roof needs to be replaced. There's all sorts of interior work that needs to be done because of water damage that came in because of the area of that roof that needs to be replaced. And so I think about that. And here's a neat thing that's happened in recent days. In recent days, the Lord set up uh, just a, a situation that I, I, I look at and I'm like, all right, Lord, this is an absolute gift from you. And it includes the financial means to pay for those repairs. I was approached several months ago by another church in the area that is giving up their building. They're going to sell their building, and they are looking for a meeting space in the area that they could share with another church. And we got to talking, and, and uh, they asked if when the group we're establishing there isn't using the building, if they could use the building as well, and they would like to pay a monthly amount to contribute to the costs of using the property, including helping to fund the needed repairs to the property. And I said, that sounds like an awesome idea. I was really happy to start working on that. And so myself and uh, a gentleman uh, named Tom who lives out in Beaver Falls, we've been orchestrating this with another friend of ours named Craig. And I said, all right, so start asking around for trusted contractors and people that, that others in your congregation know and use that have been vetted and can, uh, they can recommend to us. And then another group that we got in contact with happened to be a youth ministry that does building repairs and stuff like that for other ministries. And so at this point now, I've got the heating replacement that's going to take place on Monday. I've got the roof replacement that's going to take place the following week and the interior work that's going to start 
happening on the following week, and it's going to be funded by this church that's going to share use of that facility. Isn't that a lovely, wonderful thing? Like, I, I'm just so, I'm so grateful how the Lord will orchestrate stuff like that when He wants something to take place. I watch Him do that stuff all the time. By the way, that's not something man can just orchestrate. You can't just make that stuff happen, right? And it's obvious that the Lord, and by the way, there's a lot of new jobs, a lot of new industry, a lot of new people moving to Beaver Falls. I'm convinced the Lord wants that church to exist out there and that He wants a gospel witness to be there. And so, uh, just trying to figure out how that was all going to happen, though, was weighing on my mind, and I was trying to figure it all out, and then eventually I realized, you know what, there's no way I can complete this project by myself. And when you try and do, this is what I've discovered in my own life, anything I ever try and do by myself, anything I ever try and do without utilizing the help that the Lord su- supplies, if I, if I actually try and go about things that way, it produces anxiety in my life. Whatever I try and do alone, It's like, fine, you can do it alone, but that's the anxious way. That will make you worry. That will make you feel anxious. It will be a burden you feel like you're carrying alone, and it will make you worry. So there's no way I could have completed that project by myself. I don't live anywhere near there. So that help that the Lord supplied is a great relief. And they're hosting, uh, you know, a a whole bunch of, uh, or handling a whole bunch of things that the distance prevents me from doing. And as I think about that, and as I look at this passage from the Word of God, what we see Jesus doing for us is basically this. He's doing for us what we could never have done for ourselves. I think that's how we're supposed to categorize this in our mind. It's like, I could never have done this for myself. I could never have done what Jesus did. And here's the thing. There are many people in this world who are going through their life on this planet anxious because they think they need to do something that only Christ could ultimately do for them. There are many people in this world that think that they need to atone for their own sin. Guess what? We can't do it. No atonement you or I could make would be sufficient to actually atone for it. And there are people in this world who live in anxiety, great fear of the day of death, great fear of everything that's going to happen in the future, because why? They're relying on themselves to do the things that only Christ could ultimately do for them. And here you have Jesus saying, no, I'll do the work because I'm the only one who can. I'm the only one who's sinless who could pay for the sins of wicked humanity. I'm the only one who is 100% God and 100% man. There's nobody else like me, Jesus is saying in his activity and in his actions. Only he could do this. And so what happens? He did it. And then here, as we look at the words he he states on the cross, told in verse 30, it says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And then it tells us he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Well, what was finished? What did he finish? He finished all that was necessary for our sin to be paid for and for us to be rescued and redeemed. There's no other work that needs to be accomplished on your behalf or mine to pay for our sin. It was a once and for all sacrifice that Jesus accomplished. He lived the perfect life that we could never live, so he did it for us. And he went to that cross and he bore the burden of our sin. 
He bore the scorn of our shame. He atoned for our sin with the shedding of his blood. He ushered in the new covenant that we have the privilege to live under. And he gives you and me an opportunity to make a complete about face. He's, it's essentially, this is the message that's communicated to us from that point on. You've spent all this time trusting in yourself and in your own effort and in your own work to accomplish your redemption, and it didn't work. And now what does Christ say to us? We have the opportunity to trust Him. Now, I recognize that there are many people in this world that will not trust Him. There are many people in this world who completely reject Him. There are many people in this world who will continue to go through life the anxious way, and they will trust in themselves. But again, remember the words of Christ on the cross. He said, it is finished. Meaning the work that was done, it's already done on our behalf. We just have to receive what he did for us. Trust in him and receive the gift of forgiveness. Trust in him and receive the gift of redemption and reconciliation. We receive that as we trust in Jesus Christ. We don't have to work for it. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to do it in our own merit or strength because it's already finished. And in fact, it's not even logical for us to try to do what Christ has already done for us. If it's already finished, there's nothing else we have to do but receive it. And just say, thank you, Lord. I don't deserve it, but I'm grateful to get it. And on a day like today, we have the privilege to not forget what Jesus did for us. And that's one of the beautiful things about a day like today. It's, in fact, why we call it Good Friday. It's not because what took place on that day was pretty, because it was far from pretty. It was brutal, it was violent, and in many respects, it was disgusting. And you could also look at it and say it was unfair. Why should the just die for the unjust? And that was the whole point. It wasn't about fairness. We deserved condemnation, so he took it upon himself so that we could be free. Isn't that a beautiful thing? So it was a tough Friday for him, but a good Friday for us because he set in motion the very thing that rescues and redeems our souls. Now, I also recognize that in that moment, people were grieved, they were troubled, they didn't understand what was going to happen on the third day. But isn't it nice that we could also look at this and say, yeah, he experienced crucifixion, but that's not the end of the story. Isn't it a beautiful thing that in just a short period of time that on Sunday we get to celebrate the fact that death did not defeat him. He defeated death. And again, that victory is shared with all who trust in him. It was Christ's desire that his church never forget the work that he accomplished on our behalf. And this is a moment in time where we have the opportunity to just remember what Christ has done for us. So let's pray and just give him thanks this evening. Lord, thank you so much for who you are and what you've done for us. We're grateful for your love. We're grateful for your goodness. We're grateful for the forgiveness that you offer to us. We know, Lord, that there are many people in this world who reject that offer because they're convinced that they need to continue to do all things in their own strength. And obviously that's ridiculous, Lord, but that's our natural inclination. So, Lord, we pray that there would be many who during this season, this season where we ultimately are celebrating the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray that there would be many 
who accept the work that your son has accomplished on, a, on their behalf. Father, we know that it's, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around the significance of, of what your son has done, but we're grateful for the privilege to be able to look at these things and think about these things this evening and to acknowledge that the words that he spoke when he said, it is finished, that that is significant. And so, Lord, we pray that if our hearts are distant from you, that we would be reconciled to you through the work of your Son. We pray that we would trust in your Son to be our Savior, to be our Redeemer, to be our Messiah, to be the one who lived the perfect life on our behalf that we could not live in our own strength. And we thank you that we're made a new creation through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we're grateful that we're able to spend some time together this evening remembering the work that he accomplished. But Father, we pray that if there be anyone in our hearing, whether it be anyone gathered together this evening or anyone accessing this online or accessing this recording through some other means, we pray that today would be the day that they receive the gift of salvation that is freely offered through your Son, Jesus Christ, that they would trust in Him and accept the cleansing and forgiveness that is offered through your Son, who paid for our sin, who bore our burden, who took our shame, who experienced our condemnation so that we could be made new men and new women, a new body, united to your Son forever. We pray that we would stop trusting in ourselves and start trusting in your Son, Jesus Christ, and that we'd receive that gift of salvation right now. Thank you, Father, for these reminders, and thank you for impressing upon our hearts an understanding of what was accomplished here. We commit ourselves to you now, and we thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.